Welcome to the Love Fly podcast. It's Paul Tizard, fear of flying coach for 25 years. And today's special guest is Professor Rob Bohr. Welcome. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me here. Rob and I were just talking a minute ago, and for those who have been in the Facebook group, Love Fly Facebook group, and also listened to the podcast, you know that I've, I'm doing this master's in positive psychology at the moment, and, and which has been great because it's brought to my attention lots of research that I was completely unaware of. I knew about, I knew of you, I've come across your name before. I also had heard the, the Volk Foundation, which uh, Lucas van Gerben was part of, but there's all the research that you guys have been doing is just phenomenal. So I'm honoured. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Rob, for the people yeah, listening. So by my work, my job, I'm a clinical psychologist by training. If anyone detects a slight accent, I trained in South Africa many years ago, but uh, actually never practiced there. And as soon as I qualified, I came to the UK. I've worked in the NHS not really in mental health, in acute medicine. So I work at the Wolfrey Hospital and have actually ever since I've been uh, working as a psychologist. And most of my work is in critical care. So uh, infectious diseases, chronic ill health, and most recently during the pandemic in intensive care as well. My other major interest is aviation and psychology, which is actually quite an unusual thing mm. to bring together. There are many psychologists and there are many people who work in aviation, but the combination of the two, I don't want to say is rare, but, you know, the need for it until recently has probably, you know, been understated. My interest in that got going because when I left school, I wasn't sure if I was going to be a commercial pilot or a psychologist. And I, I chose the least lucrative route, being a psychologist. And uh, I hope none of the pilots listening are going to disagree with me. And But I later picked up on my interest in flying by getting a PPL. And actually, it was in that context that I first mm. became interested in aviation and psychology, because some of the people who I undertook training with, you know, we would talk about mental health, mental stress of being a pilot. Yes. And curiously, in those days, nobody seemed to be particularly concerned or interested. So that became a small mm. specialism of mine. And then when patients that I saw recognized that I had some experience in aviation and was a psychologist, fear of flying became a very prominent um, yes. referral reason. Yes. So that's in a way how my career has developed. Now, those two are not really linked. NHS work and aviation work are not linked. But there is a bit of an overlap here because they're both really about working in high-risk, safety-critical environments where people mm. have to make decisions and sometimes cope with unusual, adverse, unfamiliar experiences, whether it's undergoing medical assessments, whether it's being on board an aircraft and feeling uncomfortable about it. These are not necessarily things that people do on a daily basis in their lives. And yes, that's where our interest is now. And I also direct with another colleague the Center for Aviation Psychology, and we are the largest uh, organization looking after pilots' mental well-being uh, worldwide. We have nearly 30,000 pilots that we look after, and it's a, a, mm. an amazing privilege and lots to learn from there. Mm. Wow. 
Well, <laughs> what do you I do, by the way, Paul. I'm, I'm one of those psychologists. Yeah, I don't easily switch off. I think that must be one of my fault lines somewhere because, you know, after work, I like to read about it. My hobby interest is traveling. You know, I when people I sit next to on a plane might talk to me and I can see they're a bit anxious. Certainly don't say who I am and what I do, but I, I just intuitively will connect and engage with them because I know how yes. important it is sometimes when we're feeling unsettled or afraid mm. to be able to talk to someone. So, you know, I don't have to come up with any kind of interventive skills. Just converse, conversation can be quite calming on its own. Yeah, interesting stuff. I mean, there's a couple of areas there that straight away I want to dive into. So the just to be upfront, I love the bit about the pilot mental health. I haven't twigged that. So that's an, so I'd love to ask some questions around that because I know that this comes up as a regular question around that. Also, the working with the fear of flying, the area of kind of what causes it, what the best treatments are in your experience. Those are two chunks straight away oh. that I can see. But yeah. before I dive into those, yeah. I'm curious to know what made you embark on because that monster bit of research you did in 2010 yeah. with Mark was it Margaret Oakes Margaret yeah, yeah. that that is yeah. that's a beast isn't it those two what what was that about well Margaret was in those days a student of mine and she was and remains a British Airways pilot and like many pilots they will look for a second career not because what they find is unfulfilling but they just have a, a, a huge appetite for learning and mm. wanting to try out new ideas and skills. And I guess a bit like an insurance policy, just in case you lose your medical license or something like that, you know, because, you know, obviously any of us could become unwell, you need to have a plan B. And Margaret was a, a hugely uh, committed and curious student who both as a pilot and also as an emerging psychologist wondered how to combine these interests and fear of flying was one of her interests and one of mine. So we got together and I supervised her research into the psychological treatment of fear of flying. Mm. We then embarked upon a literature review, basically looking at every single piece of research, which until those at uh, that time, which is now what 12 years ago, had been published on the treatment yes. of fear of flying. And there was actually surprisingly quite a lot that had been published but mm. quite a lot of it was also not based on wonderfully robust scientific methods so some of it would be I, I think I'm allowed to use the word a little bit goofy like you know if you you know inhale this that will help you to calm and probably there was some validity to it but it had never been tested yes. so we, we were interested in you know what works for people what are likely causes or triggers for a fear of flying and, uh, you know, perhaps the single most important finding in all of this was that, you know, people are not alike. And, and I think that will be one of the most important take home messages mm. from what we're talking about here. And that is that if we treat everybody as though, you know, group forms of intervention and standardized interventions will work, we're going to miss the point because every single person who has a fear associated with flying has a slightly different fear. Yes, they don't want to be on the plane necessarily. But there are aspects of this journey that they that, that that are troubling them. But actually their whole experience and how they got there and how this has developed will actually be different between people. So that was what we learned from all of this. Multiple mm. ways in which to treat it. But if you do not undertake a thorough 
and extensive and very personalized assessment, you will miss the fundamental issue that the person's going through. Yes, I, I sort of picked that up and uh, I'm regretting now not making a bigger, bigger deal of it when I was doing my own literature review. <laughs> I've just submitted an essay this week and think, yeah, I remember you saying that, I forgot to put that in. I want to get a rewrite. The, I think you're absolutely right because everybody's, so there might be turbulence might be the thing, you know, the, the trigger. But you're right, people's route to that is completely personalised, isn't it? Completely. And it could be that, you know, there are poor cofactors at that time. Turbulence was an issue, but maybe I was pregnant at the time. Mm. Or, you know, the turbulence was the final straw. I was jet lagged. I was very upset about how, you know, my kids didn't phone me while I was on a business trip. Yeah. My luggage got, you know, delayed at another airport when I was connecting, then turbulence was a factor. So the idea that there are these single factor theories that predict who's going to, you know, develop a fear of flying or what triggered it in people, I think sometimes is simplistic. And I just think it is really important for people who are listening, not to feel that, you know, those of us who work to help people treated in a one size fits all approach yeah. to, to treatment. And I think that's actually quite enabling because it makes people feel actually the way to deal with it could be to use some certain, some standard interventions and, and um, therapies and so on. But actually, if I really want to get to the root of it, I need to understand how this has come to affect me. And, you know, is it related to another problem that I might have? And maybe that's a better thing to treat first. Yeah. So just out of disclosure, I used to run one of these one-stop shop programs, which was you know, 200 people in a room, get on a flight at the end of the day. So rapid, rapid desensitization program, which I can accept now. And I, I kind of noticed at the time for some, it was a sort of a one size fits all approach. And for many, it could even be more traumatizing because you, your peer pressure makes you get on the flight and actually you're not quite ready. And I'm, so more for, for years I've said it's, it's, it's got to be part of a process, you know. So when people come to me now doing the love fly thing, we've got like a webinar coming up in a couple of months time. One of the things I always say is that make sure that it's not, don't just pick a, do a course like, and then do the flight the next day. You've got to give yourself a bit of a run up. Is that your experience? Very much. You know, I think some people don't treat their fear of flying, which may be fine. You know, not every issue or problem or challenge in life requires psychological treatment and intervention. Mm. I think it becomes an issue when it is limiting, intrusive, and is degrading to our quality of life. And importantly, for many people who are motivated to overcoming it, also impacting the, the lives of loved ones around us. We can't yes. go on holidays, business trips, and so on. But the starting point should be to try to understand how it's come about. Yes, you can sometimes treat some of the symptoms independently. All of us at some point have thought, if we have a fear about something, why don't I just go to the GP, get some diazepam or something like that, just to help me to cope in the moment. And almost certainly it will assist us because it will, you know, at the least it will change our reactions and our behavior. But I think most of us are savvy enough to know that that's just delaying, uh, you know, or de demoting the issue, that somehow it's going to arise again. So 
treating any problem at let's call it level one, if that is satisfactory and it gets rid of the problem, great, don't go and yes. see a therapist, maybe don't yes. even go on a course if, if necessary. If it's remaining or comes back or mm. in some ways, you know, it comes back intermittently, then it probably is time, firstly, to peer inwards, what do I think it's about? And then secondly, do something about it. Because as, as we've probably learned from, you know, previous podcasts and, and just, you know, maybe common sense, the, the success for treatment is incredibly high. And, you know, that this it's one of the most striking things in psychology that the treatment of fears and phobias, we are much more confident about than maybe even the treatment of mood disorders, the treatment of obsessive compulsive disorder and so on. Not that we're not effective in those, but for fear of flying and certainly for traditional fears and phobias, treatment outcomes are incredibly good. So either way, whether we try to do it ourselves or we need to turn to more professional help, we are pretty much guaranteed success of getting on board an aircraft. That is staggering, isn't it? Why, is, why the difference then? That's a really good question. Firstly, because I think our, uh, our insights and treatment um, outcomes and therefore the research that we do into the treatment of fears of phobias is, is a lot more developed. I think it's easier to observe, and I put that in inverted commas, what's going on. You know, the traditional fears and phobias, as many people will know, the top kind of five, ten of them would be fear of uh, heights, actually a fear of being on a plane, but here's some others as well, fear of dogs, fear of spiders, fears mm. of snakes. I've got a fear of snake. Actually, I've got a, a complete fear of snakes, you know, that I'm totally avoidant about, maybe for good reason, because I've had one or two snake experiences. Fear of bad weather, those are others. So we can see mm. what these phenomena are. We also have a very good understanding of the body's reaction to the, the stress in front of us. Yes. And we also have a very good understanding of the thoughts, the cognitions that people then have going through their mind and that they are later able to express often in therapy and, and to loved ones about what this issue is about. And then because of modern forms of treatment and, and perhaps the anchor one of these is cognitive behavior therapy, but there are many other therapies too. They are designed to specifically target those thoughts and and some of the behaviors and reactions that we have yeah. so with fears and phobias treatment outcomes are incredibly good you, you it's a slight diminishing one when it comes to other psychological mental health problems but you know that can also be due to perhaps not that we have a poor understanding of it but it's not a, a as, as clear-cut and as measurable a phenomena if somebody says their mood is low there is a huge amount of subjectivity in that experience yes. if someone says that they have a fear of stepping out of their home you can observe that mm. so you know the fact that you know a lot more of this is observable is very helpful to us but by the way and i'm sure many people experience this who are, who are listening we may not see the outward signs of some of the fears that we have but the turmoil that people experience internally can be considerable i mean i've sat with ceos and you know well-known people in, in in you know in the public domain who have massive fears about things including actors who have a fear of public performance and no person in the audience would ever have an inkling about it and it's just remarkable how sometimes we're able to you know, massively suppress that fear so that people don't see it, even though, you know, it causes huge upheaval in that person's inner world. 
you just reminded me of something that parents often say to me that they feel like they're the best actors ever and until they can't hold it together any longer because they don't want their children to get it so they put on the big performance to try and make out everything's okay uh, until the point where that facade slips and then that's when they reach out for help i think and and but what what you've mentioned there is one of the crucial bits of our assessment system which is well, not system, but kind of points. Why now? Mm. Why is this occurring now? Nobody wakes up this morning and thinks, oh, I've got to go on a flight today. I have a fear of flying. I'm going to go and meet somebody professionally to try and overcome it. This fear has been developing over a period of time. We've yeah. perhaps been arm wrestling with it for a while. Maybe we've been suppressing it. Maybe we use alcohol to quell it. Maybe we bargain with ourselves, or maybe with God. And, you know, if we can get there safely just on this one trip, we'll never yes. fly again, etc. Yes. But the breakthrough moment when it really becomes, you know, much uh, less easy to manage often is related to something else. As you said, it could be just a fear that a child's going to pick it up or I cannot miss this business appointment meeting or whatever else, because we will then, you know, not get the contract, then, you know, my whole career is in jeopardy. So the why now is absolutely critical. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. The question that people will be, I've got a couple of questions from the Facebook, but I must come back to those if you don't mind. But one of the things that people often ask me is what's the best treatment? You've, you've mentioned CBT, and I, that's obviously there's a lot of research around that. You know, overall, goofy ones aside, uh, what would you say is the best help out there? I prefer not to label forms of therapy because I, I'm one of those people who thinks, I, I've, well, I'm going to backtrack here a little bit, not disqualify what I've just said, but I'm very interested in outcomes in therapy. And one of the biggest predictors of a positive outcome is your relationship with the person who's supporting you, uh, a therapist, mental health professional, even a friend and so on. So the fact that we have branded names in therapy, common ones, cognitive behavior therapy, dialectical behavior therapy, client-centered therapy, there are probably well over 200 different approaches to therapy. Those that, have a, that, that bring to the fore people's thoughts and negative thoughts in particular, and those that have a focus also on behavior and challenging behaviors, tend to be much more effective in treating fear of flying and other fears and phobias. Those that are more interpretive, so we think more in terms of Freudian um, mm. pathways, those that, you know, where the patient, literally a patient will come in, perhaps free associate, talk about things that they worry and fear about. They, they can be effective here, but they often take a much longer time to be effective. We're talking years as opposed to just a few sessions, uh, you yes. know, the other approaches. They often can lead to people, you know, I, paradoxically becoming more anxious before the, the kind of general flying anxiety goes away. By the way, I don't know if many people know that Freud had a fear of flying himself. But of course, you know, let's remember the era when, you know, flying was it was dangerous then though fair enough you know yeah so I, I don't want to dis freudian analysis i have been through seven years of it myself i was actually originally trained in that approach at the tavistock clinic in london but it, it we need to also think in terms of resources and outcomes here you know mm -hmm. not many people have 
the, the luxury of the time and the money. And most of us want instant solutions. Uh, yes. no, I've never had a patient in all the time I've been qualified saying, I have a fear of flying. I hope you don't mind if I come and see you for the next few years because I think I need to sort out the rest of my life. As interesting as that all sounds and as, as welcome as that would be in my practice, most people say, I've got to go on holiday, you know, for a stag do. And if I don't get there, my friends are going to absolutely murder me. So, you know, let's get real and let's, you know, help people to mm. cope better with the uh, with that problem that they feel that they have. And as I said, if you're looking for a therapeutic approach, ask your therapist, you know, what the approach is. It may be one of those branded names that I mentioned. And, and if it has a strong component of cognitive behavior therapy, you're definitely on the right track. And also, I would also be asking them in terms of the outcomes, you know, I know you can't promise me that, you know, within one session, I'll be on a yes. plane, but, you know, are we talking between one and six sessions or are we talking 20 to 30? And I, I would be focusing on the former, right? There yes. are some people who will need longer. I don't want to put anyone in a box, but the vast majority of people, you know, can overcome their fear in actually quite a short period of time. And I should qualify here. It doesn't mean that they're going to be the happiest passengers yes. in the world. We need to think, you know, what is our outcome here? Mm. Sometimes the outcome is I got on that plane. I yes. gripped the armrest and I didn't want to look out of the window, but I got from A to B and I got back again. Yeah. And that is a positive outcome. It doesn't mean all the work is done full stop, close, you know, the case, but it does mean that the person has made massive progress already. Mm. No, I think that's a nice, that's a nice way for Peter. And that's very heartening to hear actually, because many, beat themselves up you know i've had people that have said oh, i haven't flown for 30 years i get on the flight but i still didn't like it <laughs> but you didn't fly for 30 years you it's amazing it's amazing so that's a really good validation for that so can i ask you on the sort of the thought front so i've got a couple of questions that have come through from the uh, i'm just gonna excuse me a sec while i scroll through okay yeah so so I've got a couple of questions which I think I'd put in the catastrophizing and maybe more of a technical thing here. So the I'm not going to ask those for now, but this this one here is a good one. Uh, this is from somebody called Cathal Fitzpatrick. I hope I pronounced that correctly because you know, I probably haven't. One of the toughest things for me, I think, is that the physics taking place during the flight are invisible. Like you can see a car driving, a train moving on the tracks, a boat floating, etc. But the medium of air is transparent. If you could see air and a plane gliding on it, what would it look like? Maybe it's harder for me to just trust, just to trust something I can't see. What do you say to that? Put you on the spot. I, I, I think it's amazingly put, and and you know we none of us could dispute what has just been said. We would all mm. agree with that. I think it's got to do with perception and imagery here. Yes, we can't see air necessarily, but we often can see what air is doing. So we, we might see chimney smoke, we may see clouds moving and so on. I, I think it's about redirecting our attention here a little bit, because I think the idea of trying to look at air is not something that we do on the ground either. If I'm driving my car, I'm looking ahead to make sure I'm not gonna bump into the car in front, but I'm probably not focusing on the air in front, I'm focusing on the distance. So there's something perceptual here. And I also think that implied in this question is, I can't see what's holding the plane up. Mm. You know, when I was a kid and I held a plane in my hand, my hand was connected with this toy. So, you know, that mental imagery, you know, was in a sense complete. 
But here is this plane, you know, moving through air and hopefully, you know, not in a, in a turbulent condition. I think the only analogy we can put here, and I'm, I'm sure many pilots on the fear of flying courses describe this, think of it as water right mm. it's well in a way you could say air is a form of water because it will contain water molecules there somewhere but you can't see it and it's obviously there aren't waves and things like that in the traditional sense so i think the point is yes you're surrounded by stuff in fact you're surrounded by something very powerful because you're moving through that air so quickly that that's what gives the lift to the to the plane that's how it actually stays up so number one you know, I would redirect my attention there and think, mm. you know, air is water. And the other is that there's something about being in this plane that's made me focus on that because I don't usually do that in another context. And then I would also redirect my attention somewhere else, which is I would go prepared on that plane journey thinking during this journey, I'm going to have those kind of worries. So what is a countermeasure that I might use so that that worry does not build up to become something you know, uh, overwhelming or very, mm. very upsetting to me. So then I would load up with films. I would download my favorite uh, music. I would take magazines with it. We still read paper magazines and I would have more stuff to do than, you know, I, I would normally need for the journey. You, we can see what we're trying to do is just trick ourselves. It's yes. a bit like me thinking tomorrow it's going to rain. And I, I'm not mad for rain. I know some people like it. And I can spend all of today worrying about tomorrow, going to dust off my raincoat, not sleeping properly tonight. Or I could wake up in the morning and just get on with it. Yeah. And, I, you know, I, I realize maybe the analogy may feel a bit insensitive and not entirely effective. But let's think of it that way. We're thinking too much about something that we can't actually resolve. And so therefore, either think of it differently or direct your attentions elsewhere. Love that, Rob. That's great. Well, I don't have to ask you another question. Okay, this one's coming from Ryan Spellman. What do we do to combat the unhelpful thoughts? And I know it exists already on the podcast, but any reassurance in flying over the ocean would be great. How routine are night flights over the Atlantic? Any easier or harder than land? Now, I don't think they're asking actually about safety of flying over water because we talk about that i think it's there's a thought process behind it is my take on that it might have that's a great question by the way it might have some similarity to the previous one which is you know i feel alone in space and certainly at night time the the cabin lights are dimmed everyone seems to be sleeping or wrapped up in their own world and if yeah. you if you're feeling anxious and you're on your own it's a terrible feeling Mm. Um, and actually, by the way, I almost induced that in me once because I kind of, I, I, this must have been about 20 years ago. I thought, look, you know, I talked to a lot of people who have a fear of flying. I think I'm going to induce some anxiety in myself. I won't teach you how to do it because it's not, you know, what would be the point? But I, I had some unpleasant thoughts. I was flying back from Boston, I think it was, and it was nighttime. And there I was, you know, in the cabin as I described there, and everyone else was sort of asleep or minding their own business and, and so on. And it just felt a bit kind of weary. And I thought, there is no way to go to here and there's no way to manage myself. Mm. And I started feeling actually quite unpleasant kind of yes. physical feelings. I got a bit sweaty, like some people would associate with the onset of the beginning of anxiety and panic. And I started having a few kind of pretty gloomy thoughts. And then I thought to myself, there's another way to think about this. Here we are in this protected environment, a lot of very strong metal around us. Lots of engineers have 
gone behind the design of this particular thing and they check it out. The pilots want to get home, presumably, you know, they've got family, loved ones that they want to get to. The crew do this day in and day out. I started realigning some of my thinking, kind of almost pinching myself. And that is just take stock of where you are. Mm. And instead of thinking of your sense of isolation and the sea below you and, and things like that, start projecting your mind ahead, where you're going to, what you're going to be doing, what, you know, why that person there has got a hole in their sock and so on. Just get, you know, fixated on, on things unrelated to the journey, because in a way, I, I'm not sure how we out-argue ourselves. You know, we can say if we go down the safety path, which, as you said, you've covered, we could go about, you know, planes become gliders, they don't go plunging into the sea unless something catastrophic has happened. And even, you know, that is so rare. Stand being kicked to death by a donkey, as we've heard in terms of a statistic, much more likely outcome. But th that's us wrestling with the issue. Instead, we should be tapping our head and going, what on earth am I doing going down this rabbit hole of thinking here, right? I need to stop it. And it's not a great place to be doing it. So let me take it somewhere else. So this idea of connecting, you know, my height and the quietness with the sea down below and so on is unpleasant. I, I was at a big airline uh, just the other day and I was teaching some stuff about mental well-being to flight crew. And it just so happened that we got onto talking about our favorite journeys. And here's mine. I was flying from Switzerland to South Africa and very luckily because I'd been sponsored in first class. And I remember staring out of the window and flying over Africa in the daytime and everything from my maps and globes of the world and Atlas was there in front of me. There was Lake Victoria. Then, you know, previously we'd you know, flown over the Sahara Desert and so on. And that actually excited me. Right. Okay. Yeah. I don't really have a fear of flying. I have a, probably a fear of not flying, which is a different thing. I, I want my plane to get off the ground so I can go somewhere. I don't want to be stuck in an airport. I hate airports. Absolutely with a passion, but I love being on the plane, which is weird. I'm sure if you're listening to this, but once on the plane, as I said, I started enjoying what I could do there that was unique that I can't do elsewhere. And just that sense of yeah. looking down on earth. Now I know you know, the question here wasn't about looking down on earth, it was looking down on water or looking out into the black um, of, of the night and so on. Mm. But for that, as I said, you, you, you actually then need to, to do things that settle and calm you. You can't light a, you know, a, a flagrant candle on, on, on a plane, obviously, but if you're on the ground, you might do that and then you might meditate a bit. But you can meditate on a plane, even with all that terrible noise going on in the background. You can hum gently to yourself. It's a way of, in a way, lowering your heart rate. You yes. can tap your middle finger on the hand rest. It's quite a, a hypnotic thing to do as fast as you can. And I, do, I know nobody can see this, but I'm holding up my middle, very rude finger right at this moment, the one that you tell people bad things with. You take that middle finger and keep all your other fingers still and tap on the armrest as fast as you can, and you will be burning your brain. Right? It's a wonderful form of self-hypnosis distraction. In fact, we teach that in the NHS to people who don't like to have, for example, their blood taken or an injection. Look away, tap your finger, and your brain will be so absorbed with moving your finger and humming, let's say, at the same time, that it will not have that extra capacity to worry. So it'll get you through the moment. It won't solve big problems mm. in life, but it'll get you through that feeling of emptiness and, and fear. Love that. That's a, 
that's a pretty cool technique. I can see that going. <laughs> Flies. People listen to the podcast. That's brilliant. Well, do remember to keep your finger down that middle yes, finger. Yes, I was going to suggest that. The flight attendant or the passenger next yeah. could be quite upset. Yeah, they don't. They don't like that sort of thing, people. Generally, <laughs> uh, but you've actually done a really nice segue into pilot health and mental health there uh, so thank you for that because i was thinking how do i crowbar my way into the pilot health one so you've done it for me tell us a little because this is something that people were particularly after the the german wings incident there was a lot of concern in the nervous flyer pub you know, domain around that so what do you say is in place now or has always been in place perhaps yeah, it, 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 it's always a difficult one because it, it feels like when we talk about the mental health of crew on board the aircraft, that it's something, you know, we can't see. All of us understand, you know, you're not, you will never see a pilot flying a plane with their arm in a sling, right? Because you can see what's happened to them. You, don't, mm. you may not know what actually caused that, but you know that they can't operate the control, so they would not be medically fit to do so. Mental health issues are often hidden for all of us, right? You know, we could be happy and chirpy, but below the surface, we may not be, you know, at our best. The mental well-being of air crew is definitely a topic of the 21st century. And as you mentioned, German wings, where the pilot deliberately crashed the plane, was what we call firstly a black swan event. It's just a, a term that I came to learn after the event. And that is, it's so rare, so incredibly rare, mm. But in a way, we can never go about preventing this by going looking for suicidal pilots, because you will never find a suicidal pilot when you go looking, right? It's just in, in, an impossibility. What we do know is in the history of modern civil aviation, so we're talking about the last 40 to 50 years, there have been seven to eight crashes associated with a pilot deliberately crashing a plane. Now, that is the numerator, if we think back to uh, basic arithmetic. The denominator here is the number of flights that have successfully taken off and landed over these 40, 50 years ever yes. since. And, and so therefore, it, it's, a, it's a statistic that we can't even report. It's 0. 0.0000, whatever, you know, uh, 0.1. So we... Our thinking here is we, we're not going around looking for suicidal pilots. And, you know, when pilots don't feel great, they ground themselves anyway, right? Earache, perhaps a, a, a headache, a bit of cold or something like that, they're not going to fly. What we do know is that many pilots can feel stress or they can have some issues in their relationships or maybe they're a bit worried because they've got a simulated check or a medical check coming up. You know, they're all like us. We're all the same sort of people. We, we experience very similar lives. So the issue now is to firstly prevent seemingly small problems from escalating, because that is always a concern. Because if a pilot, you know, is let's say going through a, a, a difficult divorce and there is a lot of legal process going on, and it's going on and on and on, this can escalate for them, and it can then affect their concentration. So all pilots now know, if they are in that situation, they shouldn't be flying. And to my understanding, that is, you know, very much carried out by pilots. The doctors who look after pilots, called aviation medical examiners, also assess this with pilots every time they meet with them, Plus, the organizations themselves often now have in place support systems and mechanisms where pilots can go to if they need any kind of help at all. So 
you know, nobody can say nothing will ever happen. But I think the one thing we can be really reassured about, particularly within Western developed countries, and, and I say this because not every country in the world provides well-being support for pilots as we do within the EU, UK, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, USA, South Africa, Israel, these, these are countries that have, and, and there are many others as well, have amazingly well-developed programs for supporting pilots. And that's what we do. And I, I can reassure people that, you know, when it, it's not, you know, so busy that we don't know what to do with ourselves. So pilots typically are very conservative, very cautious people when it comes to risk. So, you know, when they're not feeling at their best, for whatever reason, physical, mm. mental, they're not going to fly. But from time to time, and as we saw, you know, in this incident from, you know, seven years ago, a pilot, you know, with bad intent will find themselves in that position where they could cause harm. But we also have mitigations against that. You know, in some situations, there's always somebody else on the flight deck. A pilot wouldn't be necessarily on their own. Um, You know, there are random drug and alcohol tests being carried out as we speak this very second. Somewhere in Europe, a pilot is now being breathalyzed and there will be one in five seconds time as well. And, you know, all of these sort of things that are put in place help to keep pilots safe and to keep us safe. That doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have stress. You know, let's be clear. All of us have stress and stress goes with the job. It goes with life. But what we don't want is stress to expand and for people to feel ashamed about having the stress that they have or the problem and therefore not seek help. And also for pilots, they need to know that, you know, they're still going to get paid even if they're grounded, because that was one of the problems with German wings. The pilot there feared that he was going to lose his job and then lose his pay. So he was not, therefore, feeling comfortable about mm. you know, grounding himself, even though he recognised he had a mental health problem. Yeah, that's a good link. I didn't know that. I did read around that. That's a really useful backstory, isn't it? Definitely, yeah. Mm. So when you think about all the people that you've helped over the years, I'm just curious, I'm thinking, you know, you seem like a really sound, you've got some really nice ways of describing things. It sounds very humanistic and just humane and all those other great words that I'll probably take out later because I don't like them. What I really getting is sense of that you like to help people. And I'm just wondering if there's been a case or a couple of times where you thought that person really shifted or I'm really proud of what we did were able to achieve together you know is there someone that comes to mind when you think of that there are many people and you know i i think i'm just a catalyst for facilitating this right i don't do something to someone that sounds incredibly deterministic and and you know really makes people seem like they're just very simple and you just you know push them in a particular direction and something happens there was one particular person who I, if, if I can say, didn't just have a fear of flying, was averse to flying. So, you know, there are different degrees of fear, as in would not step on board a plane. And through several sessions, and I know I made it seem like this could all be achieved, a fear of flying could be overcome just, you know, in two or three or maybe five meetings. For her, we spent several sessions just getting used to the whole sensation. And, you know, even as you would have heard from Lucas, there are simulators that can be used. But for her, it was even way before going into a simulator. We spent time in the consultation room just thinking about flying, thinking about the pros and cons for her and all the things that could happen and and all the questions that she had. And that needed to be explored. 
Then we sat at, a, at an airport, as you know, everyone listening here has now heard of my least favorite place on earth. I hate airports. <laughs> and we sat there and we kind of, well, sniffed the jet fuel, not literally, but you do get a bit yeah, of that kind of smell. We saw the hustle and bustle and people moving yeah. around. And even that for her caused her to sweat. Mm. And we, we did that twice. And then we even went airside, even though she did not want to get on the plane. And we just came right back. We eventually took a flight. And at every single point, I did wonder whether she would want to get off the plane. Yes. And she was incredibly brave. And I don't know if it was just my presence with her, a bit of adrenaline on her side and the determination or just good luck. And she sat through it. And there, there were times when she literally dug her nails into my arm. I, I think mm. she thought it was the armrest at one point. Mm. And hats off to her, she got through it. And we did it again on the same day. And then, as people would imagine, the homework was go and try it on your own or do it with your partner, which she duly did. And things just got better and better for her. And of course, it's, you know, I'm describing it because it's a success story. She wrote to me about a year later, and actually by that point had become very senior in her organization because now being able to travel yes. had enabled her to get the promotions that she wanted expressing incredible gratitude, which I'm very humble about because I actually think it was all about her. I facilitated it there because I was kind of her wingman. I could go with her. I could relate mm. to her. I could understand. I didn't push her to do things she wasn't ready to do. Yeah. She did it. And then when she saw that her mind and body could cope with this, new things came to her mind. And she travels extensively now. So, you know, from that wow. point of view, yeah, it's, it's an amazing story. And there are others too. And I can also share with you some where people just have not been able to make that progress. And, you know, I know you haven't asked that question, but sometimes it comes down to motivation, which may seem perhaps a little bit insensitive if you're listening. Oh, well, if you're not motivated to overcoming your problem, then you'll never succeed. Actually, that is the basis of all psychological therapy. I don't believe there's a therapist anywhere who can you know, legitimately describe a case where a patient comes to see them who has no intention of changing, but they manage to change them, right? People don't. We change when we feel either highly motivated to doing so, or when the downside of not changing is so painful that you know, we almost have no choice. And so I think occasionally people's motivation is not right up there because they don't necessarily need travel. And by the way, I'm a case in point. I mentioned I have a fear of snakes. I'm a psychologist. I know how to access support. I'm not actually that interested in overcoming it, even though I travel to South Africa occasionally. I cross my fingers and hope I don't see a snake. But to this day, I will not go to the reptile cage at London Zoo with my kids because I don't want to see them, even though they're behind glass, you know, yes. Uh, you know, that's very thick. So motivation, I think, is a factor here. And I think the other is just an imagery thing here, picturing success. What does it look like? Mm. And believe it or not, for some people, that success is actually problematic. They don't want to see themselves on the beach. They don't want to see themselves necessarily participating in some things that many other people, you know, would enjoy. The, the life that they lead is perfectly satisfactory and adequate, and we mustn't judge them for that. No, I like that. There's lots of hope in that, those stories there and uh, people listening. I, I I agree about the motivation because we get, when I used to run the huge courses, there were several times that people would say, oh, I was, I say, well, what, why are you here today? So I was giving it as a gift. 
And I say, oh my goodness, that's the possibly the worst thing, you know, because if you aren't ready for it, it's like the gift of death, isn't it? It's like, why would you, why would you do that to somebody, you know? But it comes from a good place. But if the person's not motivated, there's no, not a hope in hell anything's going to change. I think some people will know that a gift that actually may be welcome, although not at first sight, is an introductory flying lesson. There are many people, I know it's not for everyone, but there are many patients who I've seen who actually start to really make more progress than in any other way when they go in a light aircraft with a highly experienced trainer and maybe spend half an hour in the air and, and experience what it is to fly an aircraft. Obviously, it's not a commercial plane, but the change that can come from that experience can be considerable. So, you know, there are gifts to give to people. And as you said, maybe one to treat your fear of flying in a course may not always be welcome, but flying a plane, initially not welcome, but the, the effectiveness of that is, is really amazing. Yeah, well, that's an interesting thought. Thank you. I've taken a lot of your time. I can't believe we've been talking for like nearly 50 minutes. So can you believe that? Just so interesting. And I know people will be listening to this saying, don't finish the podcast because there's some really great stuff there. But I'm also mindful. About the hour is the sweet spot I find for these type of things. So if I could push one last thing, it would be, and I ask this of everybody that comes on the podcast, if you had one sort of top tip or you must do this in terms of to try and beat your fear of flying. What would your advice be? I think there are three things and they're, they're going to be a combination of cognitive and behavioral issues. Number one, the fact that you can't fly is more to do with a perceptual thing. And we can overcome those because you pictured yourself or we pictured ourselves doing something unpleasant. And the brain has told us, don't go there. But we can hijack our brains. And there are lots of things that we do in our lives that are not necessarily welcome or pleasant. And we can do those in this condition here as well. The other two are very behavioral, and I'm absolutely confident you've covered them before. Your breathing. The, the smallest intervention for maximum gain is to change our breathing so that we slow down the rate of intake of breath. And the most important thing, we exhale slowly, whether it's through your nose, but preferably through your mouth, for at least seven seconds, slowly, and pump out the last bit of air so that there is nothing left in your lungs. And repeat, you keep doing that, you will bring your heart rate down, the sweating will stop, the agitation will stop, the fixation with your eyes will stop, it'll calm you. It's more effective than Valium because it works very quickly. Mm. And the other, which may seem banal, put a false smile on your face. In your jaw, you've got around 138 muscles, right? They are usually for smiling, chewing, swallowing, and so on. It's the largest concentration of muscles. If you put a small smile, not a kind of crazy one, but a small one on your face, you've just manipulated the largest number of muscles in your body a message goes to your brain, I'm relaxed. And your brain gets very confused because you're feeling anxious, maybe about the flying experience, but simultaneously relaxing yourself, having done almost nothing other than lift the two sides of your mouth. That and breathing and also hijacking your brain will help you to take you know, some really huge steps in this journey. That is amazing. There's a part of me that just want, I've got this image now. I've got to say it. You know, I've got this, you're sort of, you're, you're flicking your middle finger and grinning at the cabin crew. <laughs> is, that, is that about it? Have I summed that up right? 
you, that, that is it. And if you can, you know, bottle all of that and keep to those things. And, and actually, you know, in all seriousness, one of the reasons is, you know, when we're feeling very stressed, if we've got to do 20 different things, we'll never remember it. Yeah. So, you know, get the essence going, the rest will sort itself out. And you're absolutely right. We, you know, fearful flyers spot each other easily. They have a sense of trepidation and going forward, they're going to all be breathing and smiling and sticking their rude fingers around the place. <laughs> awesome. Rob, that was great. Thank you so much. I'm really grateful for your time. Uh, I was pleased to be able to connect with you, especially after reading your research, was, which has been massively helpful for me doing my studies. But it's just been great to meet you as well. So thank you so much. And great to meet you and and thank you everyone for listening and thank you for you know the honor of inviting me to be a part of this